Good evening. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3 will be there this evening. Familiar story that many of us have probably heard many times. But I recently have found great uh, comfort and also uh, joy in, in God's faithfulness to his people in looking at this, at this passage. So we'll be in Daniel 3. And I'm going to pray for us before we, before we look into the scriptures. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for um, the hope that it brings to us. Father, as we live in a culture that is growing in faithlessness, I ask that you would cause us to be faithful to you. And Lord, now as we look to your word, I pray that it would be helpful to us as we seek to live faithful to you. I ask that you would um, guide my words, that they would uh, proclaim the truth of what you have revealed to us. For it's in Christ's name that I ask these things. Amen. Slow to anger and abounding in love, God sent prophet after prophet to rebellious Israel, threatening judgment and covenant curses to his people who failed to keep their obligations under the covenant made at Mount Sinai. Israel was told, and they knew, that if they did not repent of their sin, wrath would come. And in the year 587 B.C., the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and temple were plundered, burned down, and completely destroyed. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes in Jerusalem and relocated all over ancient Babylon, and they became exiles. Israel was now a minority surrounded in a new culture with new gods. Israel now lived in a faithless culture with many foreign gods. How would Israel, even though they had not yet, and the reason why they were enslaved and exiled to Babylon was because of their faithlessness to God, but how would they remain faithful to God in a culture like this? Some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others responded by simply giving in, accepting the Babylonians' way of life and accepting the new gods that, that those there in Babylon worshipped and making them their own. And you might think that these were the only two options. But Jeremiah the prophet, prophesying years before Israel would be enslaved to Babylon, prophesied about this exile and told them to do something totally different than pushing back against Babylon or withdrawing or revolting and also to simply give in to Babylon. He told them to do something different. We could call it a third way of response. In Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, Jeremiah tells the people of Israel that when they go into exile, as God told them they would, he told them to settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, he said, seek the welfare, seek the good, seek the success of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So there is a third way. It was not withdrawing or revolting but it, or giving in or compromising, but it was to hold loyalty to God 
while living in submission to this authority. And we get a picture, a very clear picture, of what it looks like in the book of Daniel to choose this, if you will, third way. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken during the Babylonian exile. And because he had a royal heritage and an education, he was recruited, along with three of his friends. We know them by their Babylonian names as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken to work for the high court of Babylon, the enemy. Now, it seems as though this would be a compromise of their Jewish heritage, to work for the enemy. Well, maybe if they were recruited to work for Babylon, maybe they could get on the king's good side and take him down from the inside. Daniel and his three friends chose the third way of Jeremiah's command. We see in chapters 1, 2, 3, and throughout the chapter 6 that they serve the king of Babylon. They take on even Babylonian names and even the clothing style. Now to us, this might seem like like an abandonment of their Jewish heritage. But as we read the stories of Daniel and these three men, we see that they chose faithfulness to their God. And they resisted the influence of Babylon, the empire that demanded allegiance to their idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil and called all Israelites to serve their God. And it's in the story of these three friends of Daniel and the fiery furnace that we are given a beautiful picture of what it looks like to live in exile. To live in loyalty to God while in submission to the present kingdom or nation that they lived in. I set it up that way because I want to circle back and draw some application of how the story of Daniel applies to us living in the United States of America. But before I do that, I want to look at, sort of give a a zoom overview of Daniel 3, and look at this element, there's loyalty, this third way that Jeremiah commanded, there's loyalty to God while living in submission to the present kingdom. I want to highlight one of those those, um, aspects of this third way to live in exile, and that is loyalty to God. And I think what Daniel 3 shows us is this, that God's people can trust him to deliver those with uncompromising faith. So it is from the story of Daniel's three friends in this fiery furnace that we get a clear picture of what it looks like to have uncompromising faith, uncompromising loyalty, uncompromising allegiance to God. And this story shows us that God can be trusted by those who will live with uncompromising faith. Now, I don't want to get too technical, okay? but I see Daniel 3 as a chiasm. Now, if I asked you who knows what a chiasm is, there'd probably be some sparse hands, okay? Chiasm was something that biblical authors, I think, used to point us to the thrust or the main point of the story, okay? Now, you won't see this, we'll see this clearly as we walk through it, okay? But here's how the story starts, okay? The story begins with a decree by the herald of Nebuchadnezzar, and it ends with, okay, that is the beginning of chapter 3. At the end of chapter 3, it ends with Nebuchadnezzar's decree, okay? The story then moves on to um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being accused, and then later on it shows them being delivered, Then we go on and we see Nebuchadnezzar enraged and giving orders, okay? And then we see 
Later on in the story, him being enraged once again and giving orders. But at the middle of this pattern, what we see is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their uncompromising faith. And I think the author did that to show us that this is the portion of the chapter that we are supposed to hone in on and draw most of the application. So that's what we're going to try to do. All right, so as we walk through this, brief overview, let us begin in Daniel chapter 3, and let us begin with Nebuchadnezzar, his herald, proclaiming this royal decree. Okay, beginning in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefix and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the promises, provinces to come up to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the story begins with King Nebuchadnezzar constructing this massive golden image. To give you a sort of understanding of how big this thing really was. We might not know what 60 cubits in its breadth and 60 cubits um, in its width would be. This is about a 90-foot tall and 9-foot wide structure. Okay? If you took the Statue of Liberty without the pedestal that it's on and just the structure of Lady Liberty, she's about 111 feet tall and 13 feet wide. So there's not, it's not a perfect comparison, but we get an idea of it. It was something of this This image, this statue, it was placed on the plain of Dura and in the province of Babylon, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had just been placed in authority over back in chapter 2 of verse 49. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. This is where the statue stood. We saw that King Neb then ordered that all of the important people within this province to gather around the statue for its dedication. And the story tells us in verse 7 that they obeyed. They all gathered. This herald proclaims this royal decree in verse 4 that all people were to fall down and worship this golden statue. All peoples, nations, and languages are to fall down and worship the golden statue when the sound of music began. Not the movie tape, but the sound of all these instruments. When that began, they were to fall down and worship. But here was the punishment. The punishment for those who did not bow down and worship was they would be thrown into a fiery furnace of blazing fire. So the music begins the sea of government officials and important people fall down and worship the statue of gold just as they were commanded to do. 
All of them fell down and worshipped except three. Look at verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, here they are flattering him up right here, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now notice how the story records that these three men get turned in. Okay, obviously with the amount of officials there, I am sure that King Nebuchadnezzar would not be able to see three men out of a large mass audience, if you will, of these government officials. He probably wouldn't be able to pick out Shadrach in a Meshach and Abednego, who were failing to heed this royal decree. So, there were certain Chaldeans, those of the Babylonian Empire, who maliciously, with malicious intent, accused, notice it calls them, the Jews. Now, the strength of the original language here is almost our equivalent of being chewed out by someone. Okay? Not out of rage, but out of jealousy. These Chaldeans come before the king and they're, can you act, can you believe this? Okay, they're approaching the king, buttering him up. Okay, these Chaldeans jealously, it becomes clear that they have maliciously and jealously attacked these Jewish men. They either sought to magnify, notice in verse, in verse um, 12, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They either sought to magnify these three boys' rebellion or accuse the king of making such an awful decision. Look back in verse 12 at the beginning. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed. That is to say, King Neb, this was a bad idea. Okay? Look at these three. You appointed them over the affairs of the province, and they're not listening to you. We could see some jealousy rising out of these individuals by, why would you appoint them over these provinces? Why aren't I there? And yet you pick these three Jews who are exiled and you set them over us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are now named as guilty parties with three charges against them. They pay no attention to the king. They did not serve the king's gods, and they refused to worship the golden statue that the king himself had set up, and the penalty for such action was death. Well, we see King Neb's response. Look at verse 13. King Nebuchadnezzar is enraged, and he gives orders. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. 
And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, King, King Nebuchadnezzar's reaction is quite impulsive. He hauls off in a fit of rage. That's this furious rage is, is what sort of gives us the expression here in, in, in the ESV translation, which isn't surprising to us, okay? Because if you remember in chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar was asking for individuals, wise men, to interpret his dream and no one could, he hauled off and made this decree that every wise man in the province should just be killed off, okay? This, this type of reaction was not surprising for us, this, in type, this impulsive fit of rage, it's almost, if you can get a picture of this, it's almost like a young boy coming and ripping his brother's beloved toy right out of his hands. And the brother who has just been wronged or offended impulsively in a fit of rage begins to track that other guilty brother down and pummel him to the ground, administering in his mind the proper punishment. I won't name any names, but I've seen this a few times recently with my young cousins. Okay. King Nebuchadnezzar, okay, seemingly in disbelief, notice what he does. He asks them if what has been told to him is true. In his mind, he might be thinking, these boys, they've been quite faithful to respect me thus far. Is this report about them true? had these three foreigners actually refused to worship the gods of Babylon, the gods that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped? And had they truly disobeyed the king's order to bow before this great statue? And then he gives them another chance. Okay? He gives them their own stanza of the choir's music, if you will. He says, okay, let's get the band going again. Let's try this again. Let's give you a second chance. Making the consequences clear to them. You know that, that, that here's the punishment. In one instance, King Neb is astonished, going over the tr- decree again. Make sure you guys get the picture, okay? There's a statue. You're supposed to bow down when the music plays. Did you guys not hear this correctly? Okay, he, he's trying to give him a second chance. But in another sense, notice the pride, the arrogance, and the power that King Nebuchadnezzar actually thinks he has. He is baffled at how ridiculous these three boys' decision seems. And with confidence in himself, he boldly mocks the possibility of any other god. Notice, he had already seen in chapter 2 the god of Daniel reveal the dream that he had, give him the message, and Nebuchadnezzar praised the god of Daniel in the past chapter. So him, with that in his mind, he decides to boldly mock any possibility of any other God. Look at at the end of verse 15. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He mocked the possibility of any other God being able to deliver these boys if they ended up truly, the second time, standing against his royal decree to fall down and worship. Okay, well, we come to the center of the chiasm, if you will. I don't expect you to follow along with that word, okay? But here is the main point of the story. It's the only time that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ever speak in the book. And this is crucial. Notice their response to Nebuchadnezzar's just last response of mocking any possible ability of any god to deliver these boys, these young men, out of his hand. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. O king, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, we've heard of these three early in chapter 1 and 2, if you remember. But it's here where we get this clear picture of these three Jewish men and hear them speak. The only time in the entire book, and it's in response to the king's second chance and this bold mockery at the end of verse 15, that the boys respond in this way. They felt no obligation. Notice in verse 16, we have no need to answer you in this matter. These men felt no obligation to explain themselves for their reason for disobeying the command. With their lives on the line, their courage must have seemed brazen and courageous. They did not beg to be spared, nor did they buckle in compromise. These boys took this deliberate stance unapologetically, if you will. Now, this should not be taken as a prideful reply or an insult by these men. They've already proved themselves to be respectful. But rather, a response of a firm stance. Their minds were made up. They were not going to cave. Their faith was uncompromised. And in response to the end of verse 15, when King Nebuchadnezzar mocks their God, the idea that any God could deliver him deliver them from their hands, these boys insist that their God was able to deliver them out of King Nebuchadnezzar's hand. There was no doubt in the ability of the God of Israel to save them from the fire. But the boys humbly accepted the fact that while God is all-powerful, he also was sovereign and does not always choose to miraculously deliver, even for his own people. Notice in verse 18. They had an even if not faith. Notice it. But even if not, our God is able, but even if he does not sovereignly choose to rescue us from this trial, even if not, this is, we know, we might not know what God is going to do, but we know what we're not going to do. And what is that? O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These boys were convinced of their God's existence and his power. I mean, think of the reasons why they were convinced. These boys obeyed the Hebrew scriptures, which recorded the accounts of the great wonders performed of the God of Israel. Miracles that these young men would have heard and believed. No question could have existed in their minds that the God who delivered excuse me, the God who divided the sea and performed other miracles in delivering his people from Israel could do the same for them if it was his will. While rescue was certainly possible, it was not guaranteed. And in verse 18, although they did not know what God would do, 
they knew what they would not do. And that was yield their allegiance, yield their loyalty to another God. Well, here's King Nebuchadnezzar's second enragement and his orders. Look at verse 18. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed. His disposition changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. So, King Nab loses it again. He gives these impulsive orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was actually heated. Now, this could be an expression that could mean heat the furnace as hot as it can go. Or, we could understand that they just had this fire, fiery furnace going to heat the elements or the metals to build this huge statue. And I wouldn't be surprised that the men who were in control of the furnace probably knew exactly the correct temperature of turning it seven times hotter. But I think it's okay to believe that this impulsive order was get that fire as hot as it can go. Secondly was to take, have these mighty men bind Shadrach and Amit Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in their clothes. Now, what does this tell us? King Neb was making sure that there was no possibility of these men making out of here. If you kept their clothes on, their clothes would catch fire really quick, and there would be no hope of, of it would be soon where their clothes would be gone, and their skin would be gone too. So they lead them up. They're thrown into the top of the furnace, and if you're caught up in the story, you can almost feel the message that the author is trying to communicate here. King Neb's response, he wanted to make sure that there was no possibility of these three making it out alive. Heat the furnace seven times hotter. Bind them in their clothes, these mighty men as tight as they can bind them. The utter helplessness of these men can be pictured even more vividly. Thus, God's power to deliver is magnified even more for with him all things are possible. Okay, look at in verse 24. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are now delivered. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound in the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. 
and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. So they're thrown into the furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar. Most likely there's two entries to a furnace in the Old Testament times. There's one in the top, where you threw people in. Well, in this case, threw people in. And the second access was a door on the side. And most likely King Nebuchadnezzar could peek through that door. There's a little window in there. He could see what was going on. And so he checks on the furnace to make sure that they're toasting as he hoped. And he notices that first that there are four men in the furnace. Then he checks for confirmations from his counselors. Guys, didn't we put just three in there? There seems to be four. And then he begins to see that these men are unbound. Only the ropes that they were bound with had melted off, walking around, not burning. And the appearance of this fourth man was not like the other three. It says he was like a son of the gods, something possibly heavenly, maybe even divine. The figure in the furnace could have been an angel of the heavenly hosts because Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges it in verse 28 of chapter 3 that it was an angel sent by God who delivered them. Or he could have been a unique angel of God whose appearance in the Old Testament could perhaps have been the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity being Christ himself. Our time this evening is not to determine who that was. And the point of the story is not we determine who that is. No matter how we understand the fourth man, King Nebuchadnezzar had witnessed the unthinkable, a divine vindication of the God-worshipping Jews. These men should have overcome by, should have been overcome by the flames, just as those mighty men were. The mighty men weren't even in the fire, and they were consumed by it because they were getting too close. So knowing this hasty decree was an overreaction, King Neb rushes over to the furnace, calls them out by calling them servants of the Most High God, acknowledging the God of their loyalty, the God of their uncompromising faith. And notice that these men might have had Babylonian names, but they did not have Babylonian hearts. Even in a culture where they were commanded to bow down and worship the gods of Nebuchadnezzar, commanded to bow down to this statue, they remained loyal, uncompromising in their allegiance to God. Well, notice how Nebuchadnezzar describes these men in verse 28. It says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. And because of this amazement, here he goes, he makes a decree. He says, Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb 
and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar answered his own question by mocking God in verse 15. He says, you guys sure you got the picture, right? I commanded you to bow down when the music plays. You're going to do it. Why wouldn't you? There's no other God who can rescue you. And while he sees this amazing rescue of God, this allegiance, this uncompromising faith, this trust of these three Jewish boys, he has a decree himself. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. See, these boys' loyalty had no breaking point, even in the face of death. And this was such a testimony to King Nebuchadnezzar that he makes a decree in front of those same group of people in verse 4. All nation, tribes, and tongues, you're to bow down. Well, scratch that. You're to only worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Being, a, being a, one under King Nebuchadnezzar's rule was probably quite traumatic. Because it was like, okay, who are we serving today, right? And here King Nebuchadnezzar was met with the power of the one true God. This persecution led to the boy's promotion, as it did in chapter 2 and as it did in chapter 1. And this miracle reminds us this, that even in Babylon, a place of exile, the true God exists. God's people can trust him to deliver those who display this uncompromising loyalty to him. The faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tells us a little bit something about what our faith should look like or what our uncompromising loyalty or allegiance should look like. Number one, it tells us that it has no breaking point. The faith of the follower of Jesus Christ has no breaking point. God is worthy of our trust even if obeying him means death. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus' teaching echoes, if you will, what these Jewish boys' faith represented. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For who would ever save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Nothing is worth compromising our discipleship. No gain in power, no safety, no money, no reputation or relationship is worth forsaking devotion to the world's true God. The confidence of these young men was rooted in their faithfulness. Excuse me, in their faithful God who promised them future deliverance. And what we need to realize is that there is no reality worse. There is no reality worse than physical death. But Jesus warned this. Do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, as we read in our scripture reading. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Separation from God is far worse than a fiery furnace. 
eternal life with Christ is far better than dishonoring him in order to avoid inconvenient sacrifices. But if man is truly who you and I fear, and if man's approval is truly what we seek, then our allegiance is a facade that will be exposed to however we finish this statement. I will follow Christ unless fill in the gap. The loyalty of the disciple has no breaking points. The second thing that the uncompromising loyalty and faith that these three boys has is it has an an impact when you and I show it. It has an impact on unbelievers. A loyalty that has no breaking point is worth modeling for unbelievers. The three faithful young men modeled such a faithfulness as a testimony to King Neb, who recognized the superiority of the God that they served. Now here's what's true. Not every stand that you and I take will lead to promotion. It won't lead to um, more money. It might lead to demotion or ostracization or unemployment or ridicule could be the outcome of our uncompromising faith. For some believers around the world, faithfulness means death. But the story in Daniel chapter 3 does not promise a long life to those who display this uncompromising faith and loyalty to God. The point of our Christian life is not survival, but rather faithfulness. God will determine when it's our time to meet him. But it is our job to be faithful. And this means that our discipleship, our faithfulness, our following after him, the primary aim of it should not be to blend in with idolaters, but to be clear and faithful witnesses to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So if I could, in four minutes, if I could connect it back to this question, how do you and I live as people in exile? Because Babylon doesn't exist. There was prophesied in Daniel 2 that after Babylon, there would come the next emperor with his kingdom, the Medo-Persian, then Greece, then Rome, the time when Jesus lived. But how about now? In the New Testament, Peter calls us, believers, foreigners and exiles. And I see that there very well could be a connection here, that even though you and I are not the children of Israel, but we are living in a time of Babylon where our culture is demanding that we forfeit our knowledge of good and evil and bow down to the gods of this culture. So as we do so, may we look to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to emulate their faith. And the only thing that motivated them and allowed their faith to stand the test of the fiery furnace was that they were longing for a kingdom and a king that would not fall. Daniel tells us in Daniel 2, Daniel 4, and Daniel 7 that there is coming a kingdom given from the ancient of days to the Son of Man that will have no end. And what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew is that all the authority that King Nebuchadnezzar had was derived and given to him by God. But there would come a day when a king, 
the greatest king over the great kingdom that will never fall will come. And it is as you and I long for that day, that is what gives us hope to say our faith will stand sure. Our faith can stand uncompromised because no matter what we face in this earth, this is not our home. We are headed for a kingdom that is made by the hands of God. So may the Lord help us as we seek to wisely live in our culture of faithlessness and strive to be those faithful to a God who can deliver. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for just the, the example that these uh, young men showed in you. Lord, may we, as our, as our culture gets um, more discouraging um, and as it continues to wander further and further away from you, let us know that while kingdoms rise and fall, while kings rise and fall, you are sovereign over all of them and we long for the day when your king will come to set up his kingdom. Father, as your children, we are citizens of that kingdom, and it is our duty now to display the uncompromising faith that you have worked in us. Help us, Father, this week to live wisely, not fearing man, but fearing you, the one who can kill both body and soul. We thank you that you have not done that to us and provided a way in Christ to be rescued from what our sin deserves. Help us to be, um, help us to live a lifestyle that displays the worthiness of what it means to know this gospel and hold it as our own.